chapter 6 um, is where we will be in Sunday school this morning. John chapter number 6, let's pray. God, thank you for who you are and what you are and for speaking to us. And thank you, Father, for the light of the Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We ask that we would understand correctly and properly uh, all that you have said. And we recognize, Father, our own weakness and frailty and humanity. Uh, We confess that the word means what you meant it to mean. And we ask that we would understand that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So a couple of things. We're, of course, we're broadly the subject matter is denominations. And again, rather than just walk through various denominations and their history and all of those kinds of things, which is a worthy, you know, more of an academic kind of study. I've chosen to deal with doctrines um, and then talk about the way that denominations fit within those doctrinal realms. And so we have reached that place of talking about communion, what we call tend to call communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. Um, or if you had grown up in a Roman Catholic background, it would certainly be more, more commonly called, I think, the Eucharist, which is the giving of thanks from uh, the Gospels, right? That's not an invented word. Um, or an invented concept. But we, we do tend to see it differently. And I, and I wanted to try and answer what I think, if what I recall being a question when we came to the very end. Paul talks about observing the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Um, and so within the, within the Roman Catholic system, and that's really going to be much of our focus uh, this morning, uh, <clears throat> there before one takes the Lord's Supper, um, which I did not know this until I was doing the research, one of the differences between Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic is that Eastern Orthodox, or what you know was kind of old-line Catholic before the division, they actually give a form of communion to infants. They have infant communion. Roman Catholicism doesn't do that. The process is to go through the classes of confirmation in which you affirm your belief in Roman Catholic doctrines, that's what's supposed to happen. And then you are permitted to partake in the Lord's Supper. And, and so the First Communion is kind of a milestone event. Um, and the question was, within that system, you know, what about eating and drinking unworthily? And, and the Roman Catholics deal with this. I took this from the, it's the, the website is usccb.org. It's the Conference Catholic Bishops. Okay, and, and they say sacrilege consists in profaning or treating unworthily the sacraments and other liturgical actions as well as person, things, or places consecrated to God. Sacrilege is a grave sin, especially when committed against the Eucharist, for in this sacrament the true body of Christ is made substantially present for us. So uh, a Roman Catholic priest would treat partaking in an unworthy manner as a sacrilegious thing. And then, of course, having committed sacrilege, you would need to go through the Roman Catholic process of having your sins forgiven through confession, whatever. And I'm, you know, 
I'm not trying to be flippant or dismissive. I just didn't pursue that, and that's not anything that we have considered. So, so they want everybody to take it and observe it seriously. And in some ways, now I better not say that because that would, that would not be right. So, so anyway, they have a mechanism. They address that, um, and, and there is a process that, that would be followed if you violate that. Now, whether or not a person is ever conscious of having participated unworthily, that would be another, a whole other thing. So our text this morning, John chapter 6, and it's a long chapter, and we're going to, to, to read through. Let, let's just begin in verse number 25. We're not going to kind of come back and work through it all systematically, but, but let's work through it. In, in verses 1 through 15, Jesus has fed the, the multitudes, and the multitudes have really enjoyed that. Uh, John chapter 6 is really a, a, a pivotal kind of moment in the ministry of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> so let's just begin in verse number 25. When they had found him, him being Jesus, on the other side of the sea, they sent unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that which... <clears throat> But for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven, and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. <clears throat> And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, 
save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh, drinketh my blood, hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna, and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue, as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, This is an hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, and we believe, and are sure that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. And I read that passage because it is an instrumental passage in dealing with one of the more controversial issues surrounding the Lord's Supper. There are basically, and next Sunday morning my intention is, that we will walk through the three main views of what's going on at the Lord's Supper and kind of talk about them. But we're going to talk about the first today in, in some detail as well. <clears throat> we, of course, believe in the memorial we take the memorial position of the Lord's Supper. We are doing it in remembrance of the Lord, and it is a memory. That is how we would view it. There is another view that is known as the spiritual presence view. And that is a sacramental view in which the argument is made that in the observation of the Lord's table, God, or Jesus Christ, is present. <clears throat> and he is not only present, he is actively ministering to the body through the observation of the Lord's table in his spiritual presence. 
And the position that we're going to talk about this morning, particularly with reference to Roman Catholicism, is known as real presence. Real presence. And, and that's actually the first point on your outline. What real presence is. Now again, next week when we deal with these issues in a little more detail, we'll talk about this. But both Roman Catholics and Lutherans believe in real presence. They just, they, they disagree over the nature of real presence. But they believe in real presence. So what real presence is? What is it? Real presence teaches that the body and the blood of Jesus are present in the elements. That the body and blood of Christ are present in the elements. Upon the invocation by the priest, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. They are transubstantiated. And this is why we call it transubstantiation. The visible substance does not change. But the actual substance changes. And I realize that perhaps for, for most of us who are lifelong Baptists, it seems to be a little weird of an explanation, right? So the Roman Catholic position is not that that piece of bread visibly turns into the, to the body of Christ, but, but it does turn into the body of Christ mystically through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And once those elements are changed, once the priest invokes the blessing, and once the, the Lord alters the substance, then they are no longer simply bread and wine and they can no longer be treated as such. And, and this is not part of what I'm trying to do this morning, but <clears throat> when, when we get done on whatever service we observe the Lord's table, right? whatever juice we do not use, we dump down the sink, I'm assuming, and whatever bread we do not consume, we throw into the trash can. Because it is to us simply bread and juice. That is something that a Roman Catholic could never do. Because those elements have been fundamentally altered. And, and they are truly the body and blood of Christ. And they must be handled appropriately. Let me read to you this quote. At the heart of the Eucharistic celebration are the bread and wine that, by the words of Christ and invocation of the Holy Spirit, become Christ's body and blood. Faithful to the Lord's command, the church continues to do, in his memory and until his glorious return, what he did on the eve of his passion, he took bread taking the chalice filled with the fruit of the vine, the signs of bread and wine become, in a way surpassing understanding, the body and blood of Christ. They continue also to signify the goodness of creation. And, and that is, again, from the USCCB.org website 
the U.S. Conference of Catholic <coughs> Bishops in their catechism. And one of the main arguments in support of the doctrine of real presence is John chapter 6. Jesus said we had to eat his body. Jesus said we had to drink his blood. So let's try and look carefully at John chapter 6 and see what Jesus was implying. I've already mentioned this. In verses 1 through 15, Jesus feed the multitudes real, solid food. Okay, I want real food, you know, food that satisfies the hunger food. And the result of that is that the crowds are determined to make him king. For the same reason that it's a lot easier in America to get elected by promising people what you will do for them than it is by any other vehicle. Right? Vote for me and I will give you bread and circuses. And so the people wanted Jesus to be their king. In verses 16 through 25, Jesus leaves. And the crowds pursue him. Right? Jesus is not going to be that kind of a king. He's not going to be the handout foods to disinterested crowds kind of king. In verses 26 and 27, which we did read, Jesus talks about both solid food and spiritual food. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth this. Now, folks, it doesn't take a lot of hard thinking to realize that the meat that perishes, Jesus has just described in verse 25. The meat that perishes. This is, this is not an uncommon way for Jesus to talk about food. When Jesus was having a conversation about food in a different range, a different realm, whether foods could be unclean or clean, what constituted clean and unclean, Jesus just made what should be the most obvious connection that there could be, right? What happens? The food goes into your mouth, it goes through the digestive tract, and it's cast out into the draft. It goes into the sewage system. Question, how in any way could that defile you? How in any way is it possible for you to be polluted by the physical consumption and digestion of foods? That was the question. That has always been the question. That's the question in Leviticus 11. Is there anything defiling inherently in those foods that are listed? No. Now, again, that's another subject. And there are no shortage of people who will try to point out to you all the health benefits of avoiding many of those foods, but that is not the point. Jesus is very clear, right? Not a piece of pork, not a Pop-Tart, not something that is made with 50 pounds of refined sugar, defiles you spiritually because you eat it and digest it and eliminate it. So the meat that perishes, in other words, in what date way does it perish? Well, it will certainly rot if it's not properly cared for. 
but it will perish in that you will eat it and digest it and eliminate it, and that will be the end of it. And so Jesus says what he has consistently said. This is analogous to Matthew chapter 6. Take no thought, what shall we eat, what shall we wear? The Lord knows you need those things. He will provide those things. Don't spend your lives laboring for that kind of food. Labor for this kind of food. Verse number 27, For that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. You don't get this food from the ground. This is not, this is not food that is farmer grown. It is food that comes from <clears throat> the sun. What happens then <clears throat> is the people begin to talk about the manna that was provided through Moses. This supernatural type of food. And they say, we want that food. Jesus said, God gave you that food. And they say, we want that food forever. Down through verse number 34. They said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Between verses 35 and 51, Jesus argues that he is the bread. That he is the bread. We want manna. We want every day our front yards filled with groceries. We want manna. Now, again, folks, this is not really the main point, but if you go back and read the story of manna, God gave to them this supernatural food from heaven that was, first of all, appealing to the eye, that was appealing to the palate, that could be prepared in a variety of ways. And the people got tired of it very quickly. And they demanded quail. In fact, they made their proclamation that they hated the manna. That they despised the manna. But now here are these people many thousands of years later going, we will take manna every day. Give us food every day. If you look at verse number 52, right? So there, here, here's what's going on, folks. The, the people are zeroed in, if I can put it this way, and, and this may not be your cup of tea, but it is one of my many weaknesses, right? The people were zeroed in on cheeseburgers and french fries. That was what they wanted That was what they thought about. That was what they were asking. We want cheeseburgers and french fries. And when Jesus talks to them about laboring for meat that endures, they immediately think about these miracle cheeseburgers and french fries. We want that. And then Jesus says, but I am that bread that came down from heaven. Verse number 35. I am the bread that came down from heaven. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. And then what follows, folks, are some of those passages that we don't like very much. And which, quite honestly, is not the subject matter and in many ways not germane to where 
the text, I mean, it's germane to the argument that Jesus is making because he's using it to make the distinction between the people, but what is the problem? What is the problem? Verse 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. How can you be the bread? How can you be the bread that came down from heaven? We know you, and we know your parents, and we know where you grew up, and we know who you are, and we've seen you your whole life. How can you be the bread that came down from heaven? That's a really important, right? When Jesus is making this kind of statement, folks, and we're going to get to this in a moment, came down from heaven, he is saying something that is very theologically loaded, and they know it, right? He is identifying himself with God. I came from heaven. I am the food. I came from heaven. How can you have come from heaven? You belong to Mary and Joseph. When Jesus gets done with the end of his explanation, he has created a scenario of confusion. Verse 52, the Jews therefore strove among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And again, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the text, right? They're thinking about cheeseburgers and french fries. And Jesus said, don't labor for the meat that perishes. Labor for meat that lasts forever. God gave us cheeseburgers and french fries in the wilderness. I am the cheeseburgers and french fries. How can you be the cheeseburgers and french fries? Are we going to cannibalize your body? That's the question that they're asking in verse 52, folks. That's what they're thinking about. They are completely oriented physically to this. Can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus says in verses 53 through 59, you have to eat his flesh. Can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, you have to eat my flesh. 53 to 59. And when he said that, folks, right? Verse number 59, these things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many, therefore, of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this isn't a hard saying, who can hear it? It's a hard thing. Well, what was it that was so hard? What is it about what Jesus said that is so hard? You have to eat my flesh. What is it about that that is so hard? <clears throat> and I think, folks, that the implication is, I mean, I, I'm going to try and make prove the case, is that they understood the light is beginning to come on that Jesus is not simply talking about a physical process, and I think we can see that. That he's requiring of them something other than just the physical consumption of his body. Look at verse number 61, or verse 60. Many, therefore, of his disciples, his followers, when they had heard this, said, this isn't hard saying, who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, 
he said unto them, Doth this offend you? And that's not hurt your feelings. Does this, does this trip you? Right? Is this, is this where the whole thing is going to come up short now? Is this where you're going to draw the line and go no farther? What is it that Jesus said that would be offensive? Well, what he said that was offensive, folks, I think you can find, first of all, in verse number 35 and then verse number 41. Verse number 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Then if you look at verse number 41, the Jews then murmured at him because he said, I'm the bread of life which came down from heaven. Does that offend you? Does it offend you? I'm not, I'm not saying to you, Jesus is talking to them. Does that offend you that I say I've come down from heaven? Well, what about this, verse number 62? What if you saw me go back? What if you saw me go back? What would that do? What impact would that have? What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? <clears throat> and what we have, folks, <clears throat> John 6 begins <clears throat> with 5,000 people following Jesus and being fed. And it ends up with 12 followers, one of whom is no follower at all. It really is a pivotal moment in the life of Christ. It is a crisis moment for these people in which Jesus impels them to come to a right understanding of what it is that he is demanding of them. And the vast majority of them will not receive it. They just want cheeseburgers and french fries. They want that to be the extent of the relationship. And that brings me number three in the outline. Let's ask this question. Does this passage then support or refute the idea of real presence? Because again, real presence is based off of what Jesus said in John 6. You have to eat my flesh. And so then somehow, in a way mysterious to us but known to God, when we observe the Lord's table, his body becomes, the the bread becomes his body. And so we do eat his flesh. And the juice does become his blood. And so we do drink his blood. He said we had to. He said we had to. And if, we, if that doesn't happen, then, then how can we? In other words, is there any other way for us to eat the body of Christ and drink the blood of Christ other than the transformation of the elements? Well, let's go back, first of all, to John 6, 53. Here is the statement. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, 
and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. Right, so you kind of got that in your mind? You have to do it, and his flesh is life, and his blood is life. Then look at John 6.63. Same person speaking, same train of thought. It is the spirit that quickeneth. And that word quickeneth in our King James Bible means gives life, makes alive. To quicken is to make alive. And the flesh profiteth nothing. All right, let's just stop there. Whose flesh? Whose flesh is of no profit in John 6, 63? It's very quiet in here. Is that your flesh? It's not your flesh. It's his flesh. It's his flesh. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, their spirit, their life. But there are some of you that believe not. So let's ask this question, folks. Does John 6.63, right? We're, we're, we're kind of grind our brains a little bit on this daylight saving time endings or beginning Sunday. Does John 6.63 contradict John 6.53? You have to eat my flesh. The flesh profits nothing. And by the way, folks, it's equally true that my flesh profits nothing. But the question is, is Jesus talking about their flesh or his flesh? On your outline, whose flesh is Jesus talking about? He is talking about his own flesh. Which brings me then to this question. Is the flesh of Jesus essential or not? So now, is the flesh of Jesus essential or not? Absolutely. Absolutely. On your outline, he had to exist in the flesh. He had to live in the flesh. He had to die in the flesh. He had to ascend in the flesh. Hebrews 2, 9 through 18, make that point. He had to be a human being, folks, a real human being. Right? We do not believe that Jesus Christ was some kind of cosmic apparition, just an image projected that we could see, just a figment of the imagination. He was a living, breathing, real person. And it had to be that way. It had to be that way before there ever was flesh and blood. It had to be that way. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And we must believe, also on your outline, we must believe 
in his fleshly existence in all its forms, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. I'm not going to go back and revisit that. We just, not terribly long ago, worked through that passage. But we don't just believe that Christ died, folks. We believe that Christ rose, right? We believe that there's a resurrection. We believe there's a resurrection of the human body, that it will live again. So obviously when Jesus says in verse number three, 63, the flesh profiteth nothing, he's not making the case that the flesh is not essential. He is a living, breathing human being talking to them. That's part of the problem that they're having. How can this guy say he came down from heaven? Look at him. Look at him. We know his parents. He's just another one of us. We didn't come down from heaven. Who does he think he is to say that he came down from heaven? Now, one of the things, folks, I don't know if this is in your line, but one of the things that we're dealing with in this passage is something that is incredibly common to the Bible but poses all kinds of dilemmas to us. And that is the very real tension between the physical world and the, physical, and the spiritual world. So that we accept Jesus as both God, 100%, and as man, 100%. So that we would argue that the Bible is written by men, and the Bible is written by God. And we would argue that salvation is of God, and also of man. And we get ourselves in trouble, folks, when we try to pit one against the other or make one inconsequential to the extreme of the other. They're, they're all there. Sanctification, the process of growth and grace, is of God and of man. This is the way God works. We're going we're gonna to deal with them. I'm going to just touch on this in a few weeks. God does his work through people. This is what he does. This is what he's chosen to do. God doesn't just work through people. God does his work sometimes through angels. The Old Testament predicted that Jesus would be attended by angels. He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. And when Jesus came out of the wilderness, it was angels that came and ministered to him. Even our Lord Jesus Christ was attended to by the Father through his servants. God uses people to accomplish his purposes. There is a tension between the physical and the spiritual so let me go back now and suggest to you that what Jesus is doing here, 
right? He is not suggesting, folks. In fact, in verse 63, he is completely gutting any prospect of that, that your salvation can come through some physical consumption of his body in any way. I mean, let's not advance into, into the Middle Ages and the Roman Catholic system. Let's just stop right here in the synagogue in Capernaum. What if those thousands of people had <clears throat> somehow overwhelmed Christ physically? Couldn't have happened. Could never have happened. But let's just pretend that they did. And they killed his body. And then they ate his body. Because that's what he said had to happen to them. And then they would have eternal life. Would they have eternal life? No, they wouldn't have eternal life. You don't have eternal life by consuming his literal flesh. There's no profit there. But even in that very sentence, folks, he's cluing them in into what they need to do. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit. They are life. But there are some of you that believe not. You don't believe. There's the problem. You don't believe. And this is consistent, by the way, if you go back to verse number 40. This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So it's John 6 and Jesus' instruction in verse 52, or question in 52, is not solved with, the, with real presence. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 11 is particularly clear that it is a testimony to our faith that is the reason we are doing it which is one of the reasons that we embrace the memorial position. We are remembering what Christ did. We believe what he did. Our faith is in his work and his words about that work. So, again, next week, right, we will, we will turn our attention to, to, the three, to the three forms or the three positions taken about what's happening at the Lord's table. But John 6 is not really lending any credence to that. Okay, questions, comments, observations in the last minute or two that we have?